This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, what's in, what's out? We're looking at summer trends as the days get longer and warmer and a trio of bank holidays awaits us. What should we be drinking? Joel Harrison and Freddie Bulmer have the answers. Spring has sprung. Winter is firmly behind us, thankfully, and there are some teasing signs of summer with a trio of bank holidays to enjoy, including the coronation. So what should we be drinking to celebrate as the days get longer? This week, we're looking at the latest summer trends in drinks with a couple of regular voices here on The Drinking Hour, both with their fingers on the pulse of the latest trends. Uh, Joel Harrison is my fellow columnist at Club Analogique. I do wine. He does spirits. Uh, He's also a keeper of the Quake, a musketeer d'Armagnac, and a member of the Gin Guild to boot as well as a member of the IWSC's Senior Judging Committee. And then, uh, a man who scarcely needs an introduction, uh, there's Freddie Bulmer, who's going to get one anyway, uh, Senior Wine Judge at the IWSC. Uh, His day job is uh, the Wine Society's buyer for Australia, New Zealand, Austria and Eastern Europe. And he's at the other end of the line now. Freddie, welcome back. Hello. Nice to be back. It always feels like it's, on one hand, been ages, and on the other hand, gone incredibly quickly since I've last seen you. It's like magic, isn't it? Isn't it? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So uh, the uh, days get longer, talking of uh, magic, um, and Mm -hmm. we've got these bank holidays beckoning us. What does that normally do in terms of buying behaviours for your members? Oh, yeah. You can definitely see that a bank holiday is coming because people do like to stock up. And especially if it's a good weather forecast, I think at this sort of time of year, people are desperate for any any nice bit of sunshine. Uh, So when you have a nice sunny bank holiday, uh, on the horizon. People really seem to go for it with the, with the white wines. You start to see the first few sales of rosé of the year, which is nice. And yeah, you definitely get a sense that uh, people have got a plan to sit in the garden and <laughs> and have a drink. I was uh, laughing, although I was also quite envious, of uh, a group of women um, on a sunny day at Dalesford Organic. Uh, it was absolutely freezing, but the sun was shining. <laughs> and they were cracking open the rosé because the sun was shining. I mean, we're kind of, uh, we're sort of mad for it. And we're just desperate to celebrate with rosé, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, as soon as there's any sign of a blue sky and some sunshine, and if that coincides with people having a day off work, I think uh, as a nation, we are absolutely nuts. Uh, you know, any of our, our friends from France or Italy or Spain or whatever would uh, would feel the sort of temperatures that we're sitting outside in our T-shirts drinking rosé and they go, no thanks, you know, so it still feels like the middle of winter, but 
Maybe we're a hardy bunch, who knows? Yeah, mad dogs and all that. Yeah, I mean, Rosé, <laughs> by the way, um, has been booming for quite a while now. Um, are there signs that it has sort of peaked or is it still going great gun? No, I, I think it's still going great guns. I haven't seen any any signs that would suggest that it's kind of hit a peak and it's only going to go sort of downhill or, or plateau. Um, it still seems to be uh, increasing in popularity, which is really nice. I mean, we've seen some really strong rosé sales the last few years, um, year on year. But what's still frustrating with rosé is just how seasonal it is in terms of how it's how it's sort of considered by drinkers. Um, so as much as we've seen some very very strong rosé sales in previous in recent years, I should say, the the thing that's that's frustrating is if we do have a crap summer, that majorly impacts sales. Uh, and so you find yourself as a as a wine seller, wine retailer, desperately following the weather forecast, going, oh, should we be buying some more rosé in or should we, you know, have we got it about right? Because uh, the temperature is going to be X or Y and that means people are probably going to be drinking more or less rosé. And So it's a difficult one to predict. But um, I think on the whole, as soon as the sun's out, that is still the, the thing that the vast majority of people seem to go for. I guess as a retailer, you don't want to be left with last year's rosé stock either, do you? Because it is one of those wines that people really <laughs> do seem to like to drink, uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, the latest vintage, don't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and for most rosés, you want to drink it fresh. It's a wine that's designed to be drunk young and fresh and zesty and, uh, and, and when it's at its most refreshing. There are obviously examples which are still absolutely fine uh, after a year or even two years. And there are some examples, uh, again, that actually are delicious and very ageable. Uh, but we're talking more sort of fine wine, top end stuff there. Um, generally speaking, though, yeah, it's, it's the sort of wine that should be drunk as fresh as possible. And that does, again, make it very difficult uh, at times. So uh, if you have, again, uh, stocked up, hoping that it's going to be a nice sunny summer, and then it isn't, being left with a lot of rosé isn't good um, because uh, it's only going to get worse, essentially. So um, you'll often see around the autumn time across the wine industry, lots of um, bin ends and clearance offers and things for rosés, um, which is actually a really good opportunity to to get a real bargain um, because you never know. We might have a, a sunny day later in the year and you can crack that, that bottle open that you got at a discount. But even if, if we don't, uh, you know, as I just sort of alluded to, rosé doesn't have to be a, a, such a seasonal thing. Uh, you can enjoy rosé any day of the year. It's lovely. So uh, it's a very good opportunity to buy some bargain wine. Yeah, definitely. And I always make it part of my Christmas lunch with the smoked salmon, actually. It's uh, mm, yeah, delicious. Christmas Day, completely the wrong time of the year to be talking about <laughs> Christmas. Although bizarrely, um, you're going to be kind of, you're going to have your head down in Christmas over the summer, aren't you, as a buyer? Yeah, it's always the way. It's always very weird. Um, so as a buyer, we're, we're selecting wines for Christmas, um, usually sort of July time, um, which is quite hard to, to, to get into the festive frame of mind uh, and think about what people will be wanting to drink when it's uh, much much colder than it is at the time we're selecting them but for my my colleagues who are working on the marketing calendar and deciding exactly what offers we're going to do at christmas time they're doing that sort of now uh conversations around the next christmas start in certain areas of the wine industry pretty soon after the, the previous christmas um which is sort of quite it's quite weird i don't know if i could if i could quite deal with that uh, you know it's quite enough having to think about it in the summer let alone just after christmas has gone 
but yeah, so we'll be starting to wind up uh, and uh, get into gear for next Christmas pretty shortly. A few years ago, uh, when I was editing television programs, uh, daytime TV, about a decade ago, I was invited to one of these fake Christmas uh, launches, uh, which is where a PR company will bring together a whole range of Christmas products. And it was uh, a July day. Um, I think it was uh, one of those horrible sort of 36 degree days, one of the hottest days of the year. And I walked into this uh, venue and inside there was mulled wine to greet us. Uh, There was Christmas cake. There was a Father Christmas. There was a grotto. It could not have been more bizarre, frankly, but that's new in retail, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that reminds me, as, 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 because um, for part of my job, I buy Australia and New Zealand. I was there last year for the first time in the run up to Christmas in New Zealand, anyway, in December. Uh, and it very much felt like that for them, of course, that was quite normal. But seeing all the same sort of Christmas paraphernalia that we have and that you associate with winter, your Christmas trees and your mulled wine and all that sort of thing, but seeing that in the middle of uh, New Zealand summer, it was quite jarring, actually. It's quite weird. So I've sort of had that same experience as you, albeit uh, in, a, in a slightly different way. It's very odd. Yeah, I uh, have arguments with my uh, Antipodean friends about this. You know, I'm sorry, Christmas is supposed to be cold. Anyway, enough Christmas. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, summer. Uh, we have the coronation coming up. Um, the first since uh, uh, June 1953. Um, whether you celebrate or not, um, then it's a public holiday uh, to enjoy. Um, and I wonder if it's also perhaps a, an opportunity to enjoy something that they would not have had available in June 1953, uh, for the last coronation, um, and that is English sparkling wine. Yes, well, they, they may well have had one or two. They would have been bloody horrible, though, <laughs> back in those days. Um, but, uh, yeah, English sparkling wine seems to still be going from strength to strength, which is good, and, and quite rightly so. You know, it deserves to continue to go to, from strength to strength because the quality that we're seeing is just superb. And I remember uh, almost 10 years ago, let's say seven or eight years ago, uh, the conversation was around, gosh, you know, isn't English sparkling wine good? And and people were saying then, oh, if you look back even 10 years, uh, it's come on so far. And I think that's the case again. Um, the quality has come on so far again. And where we did have, uh, you know, let's say of everybody that was making English fizz 10 years ago, there were sort of two or three producers that were doing it really well. Actually, you've got so many now. There's so many to choose from. And it's a really exciting category. So, Yes, it's a perfect excuse. If you're not drinking English fizz for the coronation, then there is surely no better better time to be having it. I remember when I first met you, uh, you were quite a, um, a young, new buyer then. I mean, you're still young <laughs> yeah. now, younger than me. But, um, but yeah, you were <laughs> still relatively new to buying. And one of your um, early uh, sort of uh, beats, as it were, as a buyer was English sparkling wine and um i guess in though that was what sort of seven years ago maybe something like that um, i bet it's gosh changed almost since then even hasn't it yeah it has i think um so england was indeed one of the first patches that i was given uh, as a buyer and that was that was the very beginning of 2017 um so what's that six years or so ago mm. and it was at a really exciting time then and it was really gaining traction which was good the quality was especially for the fizz the, uh, again they were very good producers there wasn't quite the 
choice that we now have, perhaps. There were other people who were sort of emerging at that point, and perhaps in many instances, they hadn't necessarily quite hit their stride just yet, but those guys now have. And I handed over the England buying to my colleague Matthew a few years ago now, and he's done such a great job of, of really taking everything that step forwards. But but the thing with England is what I really enjoyed about it was that um, as an industry, the English wine industry was growing and around the time that I was sort of evolving in my role as well. You know, I was a new buyer and uh, as I said, it was the first thing that I was buying. So I was able to kind of grow in my role as the English wine industry grew, which was really exciting. And then Matthew has now really, for, for want of a better term, stuck a rocket, rocket up its backside uh, and uh, really taken everything to the next level. And, and the quality of the wine is there, especially in the fizz. So I think for me, the, the sparkling side of things is what I'm excited about. I'm still yet to discover too many English still wines that are, that are not only delicious, but good value. There are very good quality wines, but um, they're very expensive sometimes. Ooh, they are. But the fizz really is just, yeah. yeah, they are. And, and the fizz is, on the other hand, you know, not cheap, but is no more expensive than than uh, a, a champagne, let's say, but often, I think, better at the price. So spending £30 on a bottle of English fizz will probably get you a better wine than the equivalent champagne in most supermarkets. And what's lovely is that where, you know, as recently as, you know, five years ago, we were constantly feeling the need to kind of um, big up English sparkling mm. and judge it against champagne as a kind of equivalent product. Um, now, um, English sparkling is flying in its own right. And I think rightly is being considered as something sort of different and often better than certain champagnes, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's an interesting one. You're absolutely right. There were always stories around, oh, you know, this English wine was in a blind tasting with these other champagnes and it came out as a winner and therefore it means it's better than champagne and so on. And, and I do think that that was important because champagne is the benchmark and is the, um, is the, the, the thing against which English wine, English sparkling wine is going to be judged. So I don't think that was a wrong thing to do at all. But what is good is that now it is its own thing. We're certainly getting there. I think perhaps within the wine industry and amongst those people who are engaged and knowledgeable about wine, they aren't really so much comparing English sparkling wine with champagne anymore. With the general public, um, you know, somebody who's buying wine in a supermarket, they maybe are a little bit, you know, champagne is a brand in and of itself, but there are certainly one or two English wine, uh, sparkling wine brands. So the, just for example, let's say Nightimber, um, who... Uh, have done a fantastic job at doing actually what a lot of champagne houses have done so well and making their brand the the most significant selling point. So with something like Night Timber, the quality is, of course, very, very good. Um, they've got great winemakers. But what they have managed to do so well is get into the mind of the consumer and the consumer is thinking, oh, I want a bottle of Night Timber before they're thinking, I want a bottle of English Fizz. Uh, and that's... That's the same thing that people do with, you know, I want a bottle of Verve Clicquot rather than I want a bottle of champagne type of thing. And I think that's a really interesting point to be at and is a crucial point to be at if you are going to really compete on the on the global stage. And there are now more and more English wineries managing to do that. You know, Ridgeview, I think, do that as well. Um, especially, you know, they've they've done a great job of almost taking ownership of of the, the market in, uh, in, in Sussex and, and much of the south of England. You go to any number of excellent restaurants in Brighton and it's got a... They've got a, a Ridgeview bar or they've got a Ridgeview section on the list or something like that because people want to buy Ridgeview 
um, rather than just English sparkling wine. So yeah, they've done a really good job. They've done a really good job, and 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 it seems to just be going from strength to strength, which is fantastic. Yeah, and some really interesting points you make there as well about the power of those brands, the investment that has gone in. Mm. Um, Especially from from Night Timber, because they they really are these big brands. Ridgeview, a pioneer, as you say as well. They are doing great work for their peers who are a little smaller, mm-hmm. don't have the same scale. They're doing great work for them as well, aren't they? Yeah, and I, that's something which has been really lovely to see, as uh, so many of the English wineries really kind of coming together and, and selling the same message, selling English wine as a whole. Um, I think any successful emerging region has to do that uh, and the English wineries for the most part anyway have done that very well and when I was working as the England buyer I remember being quite impressed with how well everybody got on generally speaking you know of course there's always going to be some people that have a little bit of a moan about their um, rivals and so on but generally everyone knew each other they would all be going to the same wine fairs standing next to the, the, their competitors stand pouring their wines and so on and and actually that was uh, to, to English wines credit because I also work with some areas, I shall name no countries, um, <laughs> where <they're, laughs> where uh, people don't do that so well. Uh, and then they wonder why people outside of their market don't understand their wines. Because you think, well, you've got to sell the overall message first. And then when people understand that, then you can start to go down to the next layer, layer and then down to the next layer when people understand that. And, and an example of another country that did that really well is New Zealand. Um, you know, the, the New Zealand wine industry, as we know it today, hasn't been around all that long, especially compared to parts of Europe. But uh, they've done an amazing job in a short period of time of coming together and first and foremost, selling the message of New Zealand wine. And that's something that, that England, I think, are doing really well. Selling the message of, of English fears first. And then now we're at that point, as I say before, where there are particular brands who are kind of standing out uh, almost over and above that. So, yeah, it's, it's good. It's positive. It's nice to see. It's a really good point. A, f- a rising tide lifts all boats, as they say. And I think exactly. that's very of working together. And they do it really well in New Zealand, which brings us neatly to mm. a quick question about um, Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. That has been a sensation. It, they, they kind of almost ran out of it a couple of years ago. Because <laughs> yeah. of a, 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 a low-yielding, poor harvest. Um, where are we with um, consumption of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc? Is that still going great guns? It's a a funny one. I think we're now at a point where it depends who you speak to. Um, So I've spoken to colleagues who buy for supermarkets and they're saying that uh, it's still as nuts as ever. But then other parts of the industry, probably the wine society included, where you feel like customers are going, yeah, okay, we've sort of done that now. Uh, And there'll still be, instead of, let's say, uh, people, their order being an entire case of 12 bottles of Marlboro Sauvignon, I think now we're seeing people understandably go well i'll get six of the marble sauvignon you know it's a solid a solid drinker but uh, i'm going to try this other, other south african sauvignon as well and, and and something else and maybe um broadening their horizons a little bit it's it's i think that the wine society's consumers are generally disproportionately engaged and, and knowledgeable uh, about wine versus a lot of the rest of the country's wine drinkers and i think therefore we're able to see trends on occasions before they're sort of more widely seen within the industry and so based off of the 2021 vintage which uh sort of came to an end in terms of it being sold um where are we sort of last christmas it was suddenly a vintage that needed a bit more of a push uh and in in times gone by you would put a marble sauvignon on the website and it would just sell itself 
Uh, and then now we're finding that even wines that uh, have been selling themselves for years, people go, well, yeah, okay, I'll get a couple of those, but I'm also going to try X, Y, and Z, which personally, I think is, you know, completely fair play. Um, I do, however, think that New Zealand is still one of the most consistently good quality wine producing countries in the world. I mean, um, they seldom make, well, the good producers seldom make bad wine, even in the trickiest of vintages. So Marble Sauvignon is still a very solid choice and a very valid wine style. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting one. I think we'll start to really see a clearer picture over the next year or two, for sure. Yeah, which brings us to uh, a prediction you're going to make bravely mm-hmm. about um, <laughs> white wine trend, and that is Riesling. Yeah, yeah. So Riesling has been that great variety that I think those of us who work in the industry know as uh, a white wine, which we all love in the industry. And anyone who doesn't work in the wine industry goes, oh, Riesling, oh, I don't like Riesling, it's sweet and horrible, which is so far from, from accurate. Riesling does make some of the best white wines in the world, and, and there's a reason why those of us who work in wine are all absolutely nuts about Riesling and have been forever. But for quite a while now, uh, a, a lot of engaged consumers have had this idea of Riesling in their mind purely because of some of the really horrible ones that were on the mass market in sort of the 80s, you know that put people off, and understandably so, because they weren't good wines, they weren't balanced, they were sickly sweet and not very, yeah, not very tasty. What I'm seeing now, though, is that, uh, and this is, you know, this is fairly anecdotal, really. I mean, there are some, there's some sales that do back this up, which is good, but fairly anecdotally at first, I'm noticing that certainly the new generation of drinkers who are coming through, who are my sort of age, in the early 30s, at a point in life where they've actually got some disposable income and have for a long time gone, well, wine seems quite interesting, but now they're sort of financially able to actually buy are all nuts on Riesling um, and I was speaking to friends of mine who are in exactly that position if I say oh so what you know what sort of things do you like to drink often the first thing they'll say is I really like a Riesling actually and I think it's got that all important thing going for it which is that you can pronounce it for a start um, that's a very important uh, element of any great variety success but also this generation of drinker doesn't have that idea in their head which an older generation had uh, around these wine styles from the 80s. They're coming at it with a completely blank slate. So they're, they're non-biased, which is great. And they are actually able to see that Riesling is, in many cases, one of the most generous and delicious white wine grapes. So, um, so yeah, we've just launched a society's own label, Austrian Riesling, for the first time. I launched that about three weeks or so ago. Oh, nice. Maybe four. And that has gone down really well which I'm really pleased with uh, because it's exactly the sort of style that people seem to be enjoying. So those, you know, those people I've spoken to that, that say, oh, you know, I really like drinking Riesling. They do tend to then caveat by saying a oh, really nice dry style. And so these uh, Austrian Rieslings, which as you'll know, David, are much more um, that sort of dry, crisp, fresh style um, seem to be very popular. So yeah, so that's that's been selling better than we'd expected, which is great. And I think hopefully backs up this absolutely insane claim that Riesling might well be the next big thing over the bank holidays and into the spring. Yeah, I was going to tease you about wishful thinking, but you have given us a fair amount of evidence because there is been wishful thinking for a long time about Riesling, hasn't there, in the trade? Uh, Yes, there has, there has. And it's been one of those ones where those of us who work in the trade and who sell wine and buy wine, we've gone, oh, mate, come on, I love Riesling so much. Let's list another one because it's so good, I can't resist, you know. And then you list it and it doesn't bloody sell because people go, ooh, don't like Riesling. And, and actually, I wonder whether there's any correlation that we're going to see between, you know, the Marlborough Sauvignon thing that we were talking about and 
and Riesling and whether the people that had been buying Marlborough Sauvignon for the last however many years might go to a nice dry Riesling. Because actually, when I was in New Zealand in December, I was actually blown away more than anything by the quality of the Rieslings through New Zealand. They were fantastic. And I mentioned this to uh, winemaker Paul Pujol, Profits Rock, because this was towards the end of the trip I was seeing him. And I said, Paul, do you know what's been really interesting is New Zealand makes some phenomenal Rieslings. And he's, he mentioned that he'd had an Alsace winemaker who uh, came to visit him. I can't remember where they were from. And the Alsace winemaker said, thank God the rest of the world doesn't know about your Rieslings because we'd be in serious trouble. All right. So Riesling for summer 2023. Uh, let's hope so. Uh, let's talk about something else that is uh, very big at the moment, and rightly so. That's sustainability. The Wine Society has set some uh, very ambitious targets on, on sustainability, including net zero by uh, 2040. But actually quite a, a raft of th- measures that you're taking way before then, uh, end of 2025, on things like packaging and bottle weight and so forth. So where do you think we are this summer on, on formats? Are, are we going to see people buying things in different shapes and sizes? I'm hopeful that we're going to see people buying bag in box in particular. Um, so it's something that we have identified as being a much better um, format for uh, you know for wine than uh, than glass bottles are and so we're running a bit of a trial actually in our list which is coming out in the next couple of months where we have put a few of our regular selling wines uh, in bag in box and we'll see how they go I think I think off the top of my head there's about six wines or something like that uh, and the one that I've been working on is our society's uh, own label, Gruner Veltliner, which we've done in bottle for a number of years now. And so what we have done uh, there, and, and this is the case for a handful of the other wines, is sent over, I can't remember what they're called, but it's sort of like a, a small flexi tank, a thousand litre flexi tank thing uh, for the winery to fill with the wine. And then we brought that over and the good folks at Three Choirs in Gloucestershire who have a bottling line um, are then putting that into... Um, into bag and box for us. It's going to be an interesting, I don't want to say experiment makes it sound sort of a bit wacky, which it's not. It's actually, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's, it's all very logical and, and makes perfect sense. It's mainstream. Well, it, it, it is really. It, it is, it is. And, and we're doing it on a small scale at first. Um, but the hope is that people will see the benefits of bag and box and, uh, and then we can roll this out on a much bigger scale. Um, but the benefits are, well, numerous really. Of course, there's the environmental side of things. So uh, shipping, um, let's say, three litres of wine in a bag in box is a much lighter thing than shipping three litres of wine in glass or the equivalent in glass bottles. So that's good for the carbon footprint because glass accounts for something like 40% of, of, uh, of our carbon footprint. And I think that's the case for most of the wine industry. But, you know, as much as people generally do want to do their bit to help the environment and so on, realistically... Um, if it's going to give you a worse experience, you're less likely to to um, partake. But the good thing with bagging box is that if you're the sort of person that likes to have a glass or two on an evening and you don't want to have to drink a whole bottle and so on, there are a lot of people that say, you know, so what's the best way of keeping wine fresh if I've opened a bottle to have a glass and I don't want to have to drink it all in a couple of days or whatever. Um, bagging box is great because the first glass that you take out of the bagging box and the last glass that you take out of the bagging box should be just as good quality because it's essentially, there's no there's no oxygen that's getting into this bagging box. So as you take a glass of wine out, the bag just sort of shrinks down and keeps it completely airtight. So you should be able to have a bagging box in your fridge and have a glass of wine every night until it's done 
and uh, and and yeah, they, they they stay incredibly fresh. So it's a really really good way of of being able to drink really nice wine, not having to feel any pressure to finish that bottle off, and always have something good and cold in the fridge. So it's um, yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of positives really. Good for festivals too. <laughs> yes, it is. But I've always thought of bag in box as kind of a party wine or a festival wine. Yeah. Actually, I was at a, a conference a few years ago where someone was explaining that bag-in-box is really enormous in Scandinavian countries. And I assumed yes. that to be because they're very good at thinking about the planet and all the rest of it. But actually, it was as much to do with the fact that there's a very high number of single occupancy homes in Scandinavian countries. Uh, so flats and houses with one person living there. And exactly as you say, if you keep it in the fridge and you want a glass of wine, not half a bottle or whatever, with your dinner midweek, then it is the perfect format. And it is mm. a different way of thinking about that format, isn't it? That's Yeah, that's absolutely right. I'd heard that about the Scandi market. And um, funnily enough, a couple of the producers that we're working with on this trial uh, have said, oh, yeah, no, that's fine. You know, actually, our wine goes into bag and box um, in other markets and uh, it's nothing new to us. So they were quite happy to, to do it. But uh, yeah, it's it's a really smart way of being able to drink the, the whole kind of less but better thing, I suppose. Uh, having one of those in your fridge will last you. And, uh, and I think that it's sort of, gosh, I can't remember the exact number of weeks, but say up to sort of six weeks or so, you can, you can keep it in the fridge uh, and it still be fresh and, and delicious. So yeah, I think it's a really positive thing. And, and I think there'll probably be a bit of work to do around changing people's perception of the quality of wine that's in bag and box because of the fact that it has been sort of considered this festival format, let's say, uh, and there's been a lot of not very good wine that people have drunk from bag in box at festivals, and, I, and and unfairly then, people have associated that not very good wine with the format rather than the wine itself, which is uh, which is a shame. And now I think we're going to see better and better wines put into bag in box, which means that hopefully people will go, oh, hang on a minute, actually the format doesn't make it not nice at all. This is absolutely delicious and. I'll hopefully realise that uh, they shouldn't be so prejudiced against against the bag in box as a as a as a yeah as a format. So I think it's um, it's positive and and it'll take a bit of explaining, a bit of communicating, but hopefully people will get their heads around it and and realise that actually it's good for the planet, good for them, and uh, everyone's a winner. Everyone's a winner, indeed. And I think uh, if the Wine Society is perfectly placed with the relationship that it has with its members to be able to do that, to change perceptions and to say, listen, this is good wine. Uh, it just happens to be in a box, in a format that mm -hmm. potentially better suits you. So I think it's it's brilliant. So uh, the best of luck with that and with the other sustainability objectives. And thank you so much. That was fascinating. Uh, great to hear about your uh, summer drinking tips. And uh, we shall um, watch with interest on Riesling. And I should be reminding you next year if it doesn't happen. Um, yeah. <laughs> Damn it. This hasn't been recorded, has it, David? Oh, no. <laughs> Enjoy your uh, summer drinking, Freddie. See you soon. Thanks very much. See you, David. See you again. All the best. Freddie, thank you as ever. Uh, let's turn our attention to spirits. And who better than Joel Harrison, my fellow columnist at Club Onologique. Uh, he writes about spirits each month. He's also a keeper of the quake, a musketeer d'Armagnac and a member of the Gin Guild to boot, as well as a member of the IWSC's senior judging committee. And uh, when he's not um, doing all of those things, he's uh, predicting the future for us as well. Joel, uh, summer trends then. We were talking about uh, yeah, what might be in store uh, for wine with Freddie. I tend to think sort of fashion and trends 
are more evident in the spirits world than they necessarily are in the wine world, usually. Um, would that be a, um, a sort of fair assessment? I think so. I, I, you know, the world of, of spirits is uh, predominantly led by cocktails and mixology. <clears throat> and what you've got is a world there where people are trying to constantly innovate. And, and through that innovation, they're looking for unusual spirits. And that tends to be a platform into the home market and what people want to drink at home, but also what people are ordering in, in bars, because these trends come through quite quite strongly. And it's it's nice to see it sort of, I was talking to someone about it the other day, and, and I sort of had to correct myself because I was sort of saying how the world of cocktails kind of mimics what's happening in the kitchen. But but actually, it's not in the slipstream of, of, of chefs. It, it runs alongside it because a lot of chefs and, and, and bartenders hang out together. You know, it might be a top end hotel where the hotel bar also has a Michelin star restaurant. So there's a sort of a, a big learning in cocktails from what's going on in the kitchen. And as a result, the trends come through very strongly in cocktails and through into spirits. Mm, that's interesting. You talked back in January in your column, looking ahead to this year, about the trends that come and go. Uh, you mentioned in that context, uh, the Cosmopolitan. And then you talked about the classics that are always in fashion. And you mentioned the martini. That's a big thing still, isn't it? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the martini. And actually, I've got a, a piece coming up on uh, the Club Anology website about, about the martini and, and the fact that, you know, it's a phenomenally versatile drink for something that's so simple. It's incredibly complex for something that's so elegant, you know. And I think these these two key ingredients, vermouth and gin or vodka or gin and vodka, if you want a Vesper, plus your garnish, there's so much you can do. Uh, within those within that context and then of course the martini stretches into other areas like the espresso martini or the french martini and these are things that are are, are carry the same non de plume if you like and uh, but 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 you know have a dotted line back to the traditional original martini uh, and are still full of flavor pack a punch in a nice way elegant or interesting and, and they're just, it's a great drink, the martini. Absolutely fantastic. So yes, I think as a benchmark for a classic, the martini is one that, that will always be there as a sort of plumb line. People can play tricks with it. You can, you can, you know, have bitters, you can have a dry, you can have a dirty, you can have a Gibson. And there's so many different ways to serve a martini. But for me, it's it's atypical of why classic cocktails are so great because it's it's stoic in its sensibility, but it's incredibly creative and, and effervescent in its, in its um, uh, variations. I asked you long ago what your kind of definitive martini was and i think from memory you're a gin man aren't you i am i'm a gin man with a twist <clears throat> on the whole but not always you know it depends on depends on my mood and and you know i, I love a vesper the mix of, of gin and vodka um i don't mind a gibson with a cocktail onion in I, I do like a dirty martini with a bit of sort of with an olive in it but honestly my favorite martini is quite small i like a really small martini because it should be drunk quickly a lot of martinis are served too big these days you know so i think a three gulp martini is about the right size and uh, keep it really cold gin forward juniper gin forward as well uh, with a nice kind of uh, with a nice aromatic vermouth in there but not a huge amount a 70 30 mix maybe sometimes a 60 40 mix in favor of the gin and a, and a bit of lemon zest over the top i mean come on that's talking about summer drinking this is a proper end of the day sundowner that's going to you know both vivify and relax and i think very few drinks have the ability to do that yeah and that uh, leads me exquisitely into another one of your recent columns that uh, you made a, a brilliant point that i not really fully appreciated that cocktails are always cold 
As in, there is, obviously, you can get hot coffee things or whatever, but your point was, what they are never is lukewarm. <laughs> exactly, yes. A bit like a bit like your, your podcast, it's never lukewarm. It's always, <laughs> all, always very, very cool and refreshing, which is good. But uh, yeah, no, absolutely, that, and that's the importance of ice. And, and coming into the summer, you know, it's one of those things where I, I would always, always encourage people to, ha- to, to, to make sure you've got ice in, in your cupboard. And it's not just about making cocktails. It's about, you know, serving glasses of water they should be cold maybe put a bit of ice in them it's about chilling bottles of wine down if you want to take something out into the garden you need ice to do that so ice is more than just you know that that thing that sits at the top of the the, the, the freezer with sort of um loose peas bobbing around in it and all this sort of stuff it, you should have good quality ice and, and that's not expensive just go to your local supermarket you can pick up kilo two kilo bags of ice really cheap you know, considering the, the price of the drinks you're probably going to put it into, and uh, and you should have plenty of it. And there's there's no shame in 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 stocking your fr- your freezer with ice and and making sure that that's that's something that is as high on your list as good quality ingredients and cocktail books and everything else. Yeah, and there is nothing worse than the dog end of a party oh. when the ice runs out, and that really is time <laughs> to go home, isn't it? It really is, you know. That is that is the worst time when the drinks start to get lukewarm, and and even a cold beer, you know, will, will suffice at that time. But yeah, there aren't many things that can be served warm. Ale and red wine are probably the things that I can think of. Um, um, um yeah, you want to keep it cool. Keep it cool. You mentioned in that uh, column, there's a bit of a a thing on social media, which I must admit I hadn't observed, where people who post are picking out ice cubes from their cocktails and suggesting that there's not enough liquor in there, basically. This this is a thing, is it? People are are doing this and, and yeah. on their high horse about it. Well, the thing is, ice has become a really a, a huge focus for bartenders and quality ice has as well. So, you know, when you go to a bar, it's it's an experience. You want not just to have a tasty drink, but you want to have a good looking drink in a nice environment. And part of that is is the quality of the ice. Um, and there are some bars, admittedly, you know, that have gone sort of almost the other direction with huge great big blocks of ice in and when you know you do wonder how much liquid is is in the glass and there are some sort of tiktok videos of people removing ice from glasses and going oh gosh i've been i've been ripped off for my cocktail it's like well you haven't really you've been you've been served something with a beautiful actually quite expensive piece of ice in it that's there for a reason and ice plays a a pivotal role in both chilling a drink and diluting a drink so a, a really big block of ice in a drink does a job of melting slowly so if you've ever been to Japan and you've seen Japanese bartenders carving an ice ball, the reason for these sort of almost tennis size, tennis ball size blocks of ice is that they they dilute, they don't dilute. They keep the drink cold without too much dilution. You know, I'm sure we've all had an ice cube tray of tiny blocks of ice at someone's house and you pop that into a glass of gin and tonic and they disappear almost immediately because the surface area is much bigger than in, in, in one single block of ice and it will just get eaten up by the drink really and diluted quite quickly so so when you go to a bar i mean don't be ashamed it's not like going to a fast food joint where they are you know putting as much if not more ice in your kind of big gulp as they are you know coca-cola or dr pepper or whatever there is a reason for the ice to be there it plays a pivotal role it's been built into the drink it's been built into the cost of the drink and if you don't like it go to a different bar you know but 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 do respect that it's there for a reason and yes like i've had a couple of drinks where i've thought the ice was was too much but on the whole 99 times out of 10 99 times out of 100 sorry i i uh, i respect the role of the ice and i appreciate that it's built into the price of the drink as well yeah i wouldn't want to get 
get a cocktail wrong for you, I must admit. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. um, normally, in years gone by, talking mm. about summer trends, we might talk about gin and the gin boom, which was sort of powering ahead until, I think, relatively recently. I was talking to someone recently um, in retail who suggested that gin sales were quite significantly down. I wonder if gin is not a thing this summer. Well, it's as good, isn't it, to talk about uh, non-trends as it is to talk about trends. And I think gin, there is, of course, a huge amount of gin fatigue. And I've sort of said for many years now that, that with the sort of rise and spike in local gins what we'll see is we'll see a lot more a lot more choice in gin but not necessarily brands that are going to sell lots and it, it will it will mimic the real ale world so you know if you go take a weekend break in harrogate or a weekend break in cumbria or a weekend break in cornwall you'll you'll find that you can drink your local gin and, and that's a great thing in the same way that you can drink your local real ale these things are never going to set the world on fire in terms of sort of you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of millions of case sales globally. But it's really lovely to drink something that's come out of the the local terroir that's been made by somebody with a passion to show off and showcase local flavours and local produce. That's fantastic, and I think that's where we are with gin. I think that the retailers now are sort of catching up with that and saying, okay, well, you know, I was in a local branch of of, uh, of a supermarket recently, and they they're now doing what they've done with real ale, which is they've got some local real ales on but then there's all the big you know the big brands that you would expect and and the same was happening on the gin shelf there was a couple of local gins and then there was all the usual kind of all the usual um suspects that you would expect from there and i think that's where we are with it now i think it, it's it's no bad thing it's nice to see you know and it's, it's not just the uk this is global as well it's nice to be able to go to uh, pick a town in france you know and you can probably drink the local gin from that town alongside drinking some sort of grower uh, uh wine over the summer you know so it's it's nice that that's happened but it, it is it yes there was definitely gin fatigue and definitely a, a bit of an a bit of an over oversupply, if you like, of that. So people are getting a bit tired. But people still love a gin and tonic. Yeah, and I love a gin and tonic, but I like my gin to be gin, proper gin, which, of mm. course, you, you get a really interesting point you make about this um, this local diversity uh, in, in gins. And I'd far sooner that than the kind of rhubarb and custard kind of atrocities that we were getting in some of our uh, retailers for a while. Oh, it was horrific. And it was it was going down. It kind of got to where vodka was about a decade ago. And vodka just, oh, I was in a, in a liquor store in, in one of the states in America and you walked in, it was just walls of like birthday cake flavored vodka and cinnamon flavored vodka and it's just like how where, where do you where can you go with this you know so we're now back to a point of classic vodka which is great we're back to a point of classic gins that taste of juniper um and within that you know you can have a gin that works in a negroni you can have a gin that works in a martini you can have a gin that works in a gin and tonic or you know different styles at different styles but 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 yeah it's 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 now at a nice point and it's nice to be able to visit somewhere and drink their local gin i, I always really appreciate that and i always try and do it wherever i am alongside of not alongside but as well as trying the local ales which i think is equally as important yeah maybe not at the same time but i totally buy that point yeah <laughs> that would be that would be an unusual chaser yeah it would, it really would. <laughs> uh, now you um, have talked before about uh, tequila and um, yep. it's getting massive and I think two things here uh, one I think uh, you've been thoroughly vindicated tequila really is growing exponentially um, but then you've also written recently about it possibly losing some of what you call its punk energy mm, yeah I think that's the that's the danger with tequila that it it, it, it doesn't it doesn't maintain its uh, edge in that respect and 
when you the, the problem with tequila is that it has to be it has to be made from agave and the agaves take a long time to grow sort of three to five years sometimes seven years and when you're taking these plants early on you're losing a bit of the a bit of the variety and the earthiness and the terroir i mean it's it really is one of the very few spirits that is genuinely sort of terroir driven losing that sort of terroir and picking up on on some of the sort of overproduced flavors when spirits categories are under pressure to to produce and i, I you know i think everybody knows the uh, there's a, there's a there's a particular entry level let's call it tequila that has a little red hat on the top and uh, and that for me is an example of tequila but being a little bit blander, what you want is some flavour in there. And I think I, I drew an analogy between uh, the Damned's New Rose being the, the first ever punk single to be released. But then, you know, you got five, six years later, Captain Sensible in a red beret singing uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, tracks on top of the pops. You know, it's like, at what point do you move from being a punk into the mainstream? And I think tequila is doing that. And it's just about the brands that stay, uh, stay with a sense of flavour, a sense of taste, a sense of style that is true to what the tequila category needs to be and isn't just becoming sort of a slightly earthy flavoured vodka water, really, which is which is the danger. I, I, I'm not saying it's necessarily going to happen, but it's, it's probably similar in other categories where they're under pressure, probably similar in wine. You know, with, with look at rosé that, that I know that um, Freddie was talking about. I mean, the, the problem with that is it ends up just being you know, thin pink water. <laughs> and, and as long as it's cold, people will drink it. But what you want is you want to seek out a bandol or something that's got a little bit of saline note in it or something that's a little bit different and have some personality in it. And I think that's that's the problem is when you get something that's really successful, the, the pressure is to produce too much of it and go really mainstream. And then you lose the reason why it was good in the first place. So if you want this sort of character, uh, you don't want yeah. Captain Sensible at his uh, most commercial. <laughs> Um, then, although I did love Glad It's All Over, uh, just for the record. Uh, much <laughs> better than you know, Excellent. Before. Anyway, um, uh, so Mezcal surely is where to go. Mm, correct, yes. So Mezcal historically has put some people off in the same way that maybe Scotch whiskey did many years ago because people assumed that Scotch whiskey tasted smoky and that was due to the, the use of sort of little bits of smoke in a blend like Johnny Walker or them, you know, consumers experience of a Scotch whiskey being something like Laphroaig, which is big and medicinal and smoky. Mezcal is similar. So Mezcal normally comes with a kind of smoky note. And I think because it ha it's more artisanal, it's a more artisanal product than tequila, if that makes sense. Tequila tends to be produced by big tequila distilleries um, in the sort of Guadalajara tequila area, whereas, whereas Mezcal made more um, agriculturally across Mexico, but particularly around the Oaxaca region. And what you get with mezcal is this kind of light smokiness. But in the past, because it's been so artisanal, it's been quite difficult to drink. And now what you're finding is, is some houses coming in and developing a style that's a little bit more acceptable, but still maintains that little bit of edge. And I love a margarita with mezcal in it because it just elevates, works, the smokiness works brilliantly with the sweetness and the citrus notes. Uh, and there's almost a sour note sometimes to the citrusy note of a, of a margarita. And it just gives it that little air of, of deliciousness. And in the same way with the, the classic tequila drink, the Paloma, which is grapefruit, grapefruit soda and tequila, uh, add in on top of your tequila a little dash of mezcal and you just get this wonderful smoky note that comes through. And it really kind of adds an extra layer of complexity to any tequila based drink, in, in my opinion. Good aperitif for a barbecue mm. in the summer. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, no, nice, nice pairing that one to have, actually. And the, the, the great thing about, um, so going back to the rise of gin, one of the things that the rise of gin did was spawn, and it was almost sort of 
chicken and egg this, but but spawned a load of really great tonic producers. And those tonic producers are now looking for uh, other ways to sort of sell their wares. And a lot of them are, are, are producing pink grapefruit soda. And that pink grapefruit soda is, is perfect. You can buy it in most supermarkets now, perfect for Paloma. So if you've got a bottle of tequila, you don't quite know what to do with it. A margarita might seem a little bit too complex. Either drink it with a grapefruit soda in a long drink, or I love a tequila and tonic. A tequila and tonic is a fantastic drink. A little bit more herbal, a little bit less sweet, touch more savoury than a gin and tonic. Squeeze a lime in it, absolutely delicious. And, and that is almost like a kind of Paloma Blanc, if you want to call it that. <laughs> Why not? Now, Scotch whiskey. You mm. have uh, been talking this up uh, as long as I've known you, um, but actually um, it, it's still going great guns, but um, you're now predicting a, a, a rise in um, what you're calling second tier uh, single mm. malt scotch. And I must confess, I don't really know what this is. So single malt scotch has got some big houses, big producers with big, big kind of famous names that you'll see on supermarket shelves or, you know, hotel menus. Um, and a lot of those producers have been quite pushed for stock because the the success of single malt scotch has been phenomenal over the last few years. And what you're finding is that, you know, when you have to mature a spirit for a decade, 15, 20 years, you have to have incredible foresight to be able to do that. Now, what's happening is uh, a lot of this stock is uh, has been kind of sold out effectively through, through different expressions and uh, the demand that's going on. And so what you're finding is some of the smaller distilleries are producing real quality whiskey that has kind of previously been forgotten about mostly because it because of the big players in the category but because they haven't been their stocks haven't been quite so under demand they're having real quality uh whiskies coming through at the moment so um, houses that maybe we wouldn't have heard of so for example tam do which is a single malt scotch and it's the estate behind mccallum in Speyside, produces a whiskey that is just delicious. And it's it's 100% matured in either first fill European oak sherry casks or first fill American oak sherry casks. So these are barrels that have been filled with sherry. Once the sherry's uh, been bottled, they get sent to Scotland and filled with the, the, the whiskey. And it takes on this incredible colour and uh, complexity and flavour and richness. Uh, and it's a, not a distillery maybe that people would have heard of in the past. And that's what's so, I think, unique and un- unusual about it, because it doesn't come with all the expectation of a big single malt. It doesn't come with necessarily the price point as well of a, of a, of a major single malt house. But what you're getting is something of real quality and a bit more unusual. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing this growth of this these distilleries that are previously haven't really been kind of banded around, but people are now finally discovering the quality in it. And, and that's for me, it's a little bit like I look at the Premier League table at the moment and you see teams like Bournemouth and Brighton and, you know, all these teams that previously were maybe a little bit sort of a Brentford, all beginning with B, all a little bit kind of undiscovered. And now they're really rising up through the ranks because people are latching onto them. The owners are doing a good job. There's real quality coming through. And, and that's what you, you know, that's what you get with with um, with some of these yeah, lesser known single malt distilleries. And talking of bees, um, bourbon was one of your predictions yes. for 2023. That's also yeah. doing really well, I'm assuming, for summer. Yeah. Oh, bourbon is such a great drink. And and if, uh, you know, it's it's a funny drink, bourbon, because, because of the way it's made, it's made with a mixed mash bill. So where single malt is made just using 100% malted barley, bourbon draws on a 51% ingredient of corn and then everything else that goes on top of that is like wheat or rye or barley itself 
And so that so you're playing tunes at the start of your production process with with bourbon, and then throughout your production process, you've got all the sort of instruments involved. You know, the, the length of fermentation time, you've got the styles and shapes of stills, and the length of time that you run those stills. But then when you take the spirit, you put it into brand new, this is by law in bourbon, brand new American oak casks. And American oak casks are incredibly active. So I think a cask is a little bit like using a tea bag. And the first time you use it, it's going to give off a huge amount of colour and flavour. It's why the Scottish, the Irish, the Japanese like to use kind of secondhand casks, because they're a little bit more gentle, you can mature for longer in them. But the Americans are using them for the first time. And they're in it, they're putting them, they're putting the whiskey or the spirit that goes into them into quite incredibly you know actually really quite warm warehouses across states like kentucky and they get warmer and warmer and warmer and as they heat up the activation inside the cask is quite in a positive way quite aggressive so you end up with with a spirit that has had a lot of highly active uh, flavors being driven into it from the oak cask it's been in uh, and with a different mash bill and all these different elements that can go into it we're now seeing a real explosion of people understanding more and more the makeup of the bourbon they're drinking and that's really important because there are loads of brands of bourbon out there uh, and the different styles of mash bill can give you a different style of whiskey for example if you've got a high rye content in your bourbon, then you're going to come up with something that's spicy, a bit like rye bread. But if it's raw wheat lead, then you're going to come up with something that's, that's smoother and a little bit more approachable. And I think that's what's really nice now is, is the quality of bourbon has always been around. It's always been there, but now the level of knowledge about it is higher and we're finding people are wanting to explore it and understand it a bit more and therefore appreciate it more. And I think that's really important. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and your column this uh, last month, actually, for um, Club O. Just finally, in that column, you quite often have a, a recipe in there, effectively, which is a very nice idea. Uh, I think it's the current column. If not, it's the one before, but it's a spring drink. You inspired me uh, with the bee's knees. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, great. Oh, I love the bee's Bees knees is a fantastic drink that is, uh, effectively, it's, it's lemon, uh, freshly squeezed lemon juice, gin, and, and honey, and you just shake it up uh, over ice and strain it into a into a into a coop. Um, it's so delicious because that mix of lemon and honey, which we know works very well from other drinks like uh, a Scotch version, which is like a penicillin, where you use a little bit of peaty whiskey or even a, a hot toddy, work really well. But when you then put gin in and ice and you shake it up, a little bit of hot water at the start before you put the ice in, just to just to melt the the, the honey down, just gives you this beautiful drink where the gin and the honey work so well together um, and it's also something you can batch up you can make it in a in, in, a, in a slightly bigger bottle and, and then just shake the bottle and, and pour it out for friends if you've got them around for a summer garden party or a barbecue um, it really is a very delicious drink and, and one of my top tips for the for the summer and, and again another great use another great vehicle for uh, for gin yeah kind of cold toddy for a Yes, yeah, of absolutely. a summer party. Sounds fantastic. Well, you're yeah. uh, always inspiring me with your um, uh, drinks uh, <laughs> sort of recipes, but but also uh, I learn uh, a huge amount uh, from you every time I, I chat to you, and I'm sure everyone listening does too. So thank you so much, thank Joel, you, and have a great thank summer. You. Thank you very much, and you. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. Let's round off with some medal winners. A few weeks back, we featured the first Spirits winners of 2023 at the IWSC. Uh, Joel is on the uh, Senior Judging Committee, overseeing some of that judging process. Um, wines 
by the way, are judged over the next few weeks. So we shall report back on that very soon here on The Drinking Hour. Uh, let's look at the uh, tippermost, toppermost end um, with gold outstanding. Uh, we featured a handful of these a couple of weeks back. Uh, spirits, uh, here are a few more, all getting 98 points or above, which gets you a gold outstanding. Alborg Tafel Akvavit. Uh, one gold outstanding with 99 points. Uh, Aquavit is Aquavit, uh, fairly obviously. Um, Scandinavian uh, spirit, this one from Denmark, made with uh, either grain or potatoes, usually flavoured with herbs, spices, fruit oils, caraway seeds, cardamom, cumin, that kind of thing. And this one is distilled with amber, apparently, by Aalborg. The judges said of this, Brightly intense herbal freshness displaying dill, coriander and bold caraway with vibrant notes of citrus, crisp and classic in style with a complexity of caraway and cinnamon spice. Vanilla warmth involves to aromatic licorice, cardamom and mint on an enduring finish. Next, a trophy winning shochu, AQ, Sakagura, Otimon, Aku no Kuruboka. Uh, won 98 points and a trophy for best in show, Shochu. The judging panel said, rich with an abundance of nuttiness that engages seamlessly with button mushrooms and roasted undertones, creamy with notes of oatmeal porridge and custard on the palate, and a subtle sweetness that carries into an elegant finish. If you want to know more about Shochu, head to episode 33 of The Drinking Hour with Anthony Moss, MW. A whiskey next, Deanston, 21-year-old sherry cask single malt scotch whiskey. Gold outstanding. Tasting note says this, wonderfully rich and bursting with spicy ginger and vanilla aromas. Sweet nutmeg and treacle toffee with hints of tangy orange fill the senses with a soft PX mouthfeel, Pedro Jimenez, which lingers in the mouth with fabulous complexity. We were talking mezcal earlier. Here's a gold outstanding example to look out for. Uh, Koch, Auroquenio, Mezcal. Uh, no age designation here, Joven. The judges said, pronounced intense aromas with agave notes on the forefront, then pine needles, blue cheese, and subtle orchard fruits combining on the nose. Lovely profile with high minerality and a smoky palate. Well-balanced, sweet and spicy, showing its complexity on the jammy palate. And a rum. Black Tot Master Blenders Reserve Rum 2022 from Elixir Distillers. Gold outstanding again, uh, 98 points. Uh, The judges said soft and exceptionally poised with aromas of bruised and caramelized banana combining with richly indulgent demerara sugar on the nose. Chocolate flows through intricate layers of tropical fruit on the complex palate with a beautiful oak integration that delivers an enduring and delightful finish. If you want to know more about Black Tot and its history and origins, then check out episode 16, a rum special. That's it for this week, though. Enjoy your summer drinking. My thanks again to Freddie and Joel. You can find Joel's spirits column at clubanalogique.com, where you'll also find my monthly wine column. You can follow us at Club Enologique, Food FM Radio, or Mr. Venusaurus, or preferably all three, on Instagram and Twitter. For now, though, thanks for listening and goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits.
To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.